Hello, Boston. John, John. This is Harvard. We're outside oh, I'm of Boston. Sorry. Hello, school outside of Boston. Uh, welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Aaron Ryan. I'm Tommy Vitor. Uh, on the pod today, later on you'll be listening to the interview that we did yesterday at the Edward M. Kennedy Institute with Senator Elizabeth Warren. But just so everyone here is clear, she's you not at this music festival. On the pod, we talked to her yesterday. That. That's for the people at home. But you guys handled it well. You clapped. That's what we needed. Um, all right, so we have a lot to discuss this afternoon, but I want to begin real quickly with some developing news today about the on-again, off-again, will-they-won't-they relationship between our two favorite nuclear-armed maniacs, <laughs> Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. Uh, today there was a surprise meeting between Kim and South Korean President Moon to try to salvage the summit that Trump had canceled, and then Trump tweeted that the two countries may meet on June 12th after all. Um, Tommy, what the hell is going on here? God, I don't know. I mean, I don't think they know. That's the problem. And then the other thing Trump tweeted about today was he, he plucked a quote out of a New York Times article that said, we might be so close to the actual date of the proposed summit that the logistics would be too hard to put it together in time. And he tweeted, fake news from a fake source. The, the failing New York Times does it again. And then a bunch of reporters outed the fact that this was a background briefing done by his senior director for Asian affairs in front of literally hundreds of reporters. There is a transcript, there is audio, there is video. Like, they have him dead to right. So this fucking guy doesn't know what his own team is saying. They don't know what's going to happen. There's no reason that we needed to, like, turn this thing into a public breakup, you know? They might as well be doing this on Instagram. So, uh, you know, who knows at this point? I really like, I really like Trump, like, a... a a member of the National Security Council speaks to several dozen reporters, and then Trump says, actually, that guy doesn't exist. And I just like, picture, picture that, that Asia policy expert being like, Mr. Trump, I don't feel so good. And just <laughs> well, it was great because finally a reporter, not a White House reporter who agreed to the um, on-the-record, off-the-record deal, but another reporter, Yashar Ali, said um, he revealed the name of the staffer, this guy, Matt Pottinger. He does exist. He's the NSC director for Asian Affairs. Unlike um, Melania, who might not exist right now. <laughs> uh, yesterday, actually, Donald Trump, in front of a bunch of reporters, again, pointed to a window in the White House and was like, there's Melania, she's right there. And everybody turned around and nobody was there. Yeah. <laughs> Melania is like, we're a couple of days away from seeing Melania in a mask at a pipe organ, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, Tommy, do we, do we think that the summit happens on June 12th? I mean, it seems pretty soon, like... Uh, I don't know, man. Who knows? I mean, the, the, the real problem here is that Trump canceled the summit without telling the South Koreans, so they were very pissed and upset because they live adjacent to a nuclear-armed madman, as yeah, you noted. Um, sort of like Canada. Sort of like... And, um, and so the South Korean president had a meeting with Kim Jong-un today to try to sort of piece it all back together. And, like, historically... We spent a lot of time when I was at the White House you know, on the NSC trying to coordinate our activities with the South Koreans, with the Japanese, because they find that to be very important. Like, they, they really need that reassurance and, you know, 
They like planning and coordination. That's yeah, their thing. Yeah, they like when we talk to our allies. And the fact that um, Trump's behavior has led the South Koreans to start just breaking away from us and meeting with the North Koreans really without us knowing or having any sort of say in it means the alliance is, is splitting, which is not good. Not good. It's not good. Not good. <laughs> um, Got a title. All right. I want to I wanna talk about what I think is the most cruel, inhumane policy of this presidency or, I think, any presidency in our lifetime. Um, the Trump administration is now taking children away from their parents at the border. Um, yeah, I should do that. Uh, their children as young as 18 months old, uh, ripped out of their mother's arms, put into a government detention center. This has never happened before. Um, and these aren't necessarily families that are sneaking into the country. Um, a lot of them are showing up at the border, asking Customs and Border Patrol for asylum because they're scared of the violence in their own countries. A lot of them are from Central America, from places like Guatemala and Honduras, where there's a lot of violence. Um, and the government's response is to take their children away. Uh, Aaron, Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen has defended the practice, saying children are taken away from criminals imprisoned for breaking the law all the time. Um, Chief of Staff John Kelly said in an NPR interview earlier this month that the new policy is supposed to act as a deterrent and that children will be taken care of, put into foster care, or whatever. Um, so what is wrong with these people, and how does that even work as a deterrent? <laughs> it's, you know, I was thinking about this today, and it's one of those things that I'm, it makes me so angry I can't be funny about it. I know. Uh, yeah. But the one way that I was able to be a little funny about it was I was thinking about ICE and Customs and Border Patrol and, and the people that are in charge of enforcing these awful immigration laws and, and hurting people. And I almost think that what's, I was thinking, what kind of a person would become somebody that enforced this kind of a policy? It, it almost seems like you're not brave enough to join the military and actually go fight people that have guns, but you're also too racist to be a cop. <laughs> um, <laughs> What, what's really upsetting to me, though, is, is that I've always trusted that there, would, there was some kind of layer in between this sort of mouth-breathing idiot group that would keep the worst of their base instincts from being made into law. And now they're actually in positions of authority. Like John Kelly, you know, for all of the credit he got for being somebody who would be a moderating person in Donald Trump's circle, he's not just all. as bad. He's just as bad, if not worse. And also Nielsen's uh, kind of image rehab tour. There was an article in the Washington Post uh, about her and, and Trump allegedly clashing. And I'm, I'm so wary of any news report that paints a Trump official that seems like they're on the verge of exiting as in some way sympathetic because it seems to me like it's a it's an apology to her so that they can get on like you know CNN and Fox or whatever yeah I mean the other thing is John Kelly a couple months ago was asked about this by Senate Democrats are you going to do this? And he said, no, we are not considering separating children from their families. We wouldn't do that. Yeah, but John Kelly is a liar. Well, exactly. John, right? Kelly, John Kelly got in front of a, the White House press briefing room, and he said that uh, Florida Congresswoman Frederica Wilson 
had been bragging about dedicating an FBI center. Yeah. And in reality, video evidence to the contrary existed. John Kelly lies. He's a liar. He's not somebody who we can, we can trust at all. Love it. Um, so Trump responded with one of his worst ever tweets this morning, I think. Uh, it said, put pressure on the Democrats to end the horrible law that separates children from their parents once they cross the border. Democrats are protecting MS-13 thugs. I guess that's in reference to 18 months olds. Um, is, I guess what I'm wondering is, is this, is this lie that he told on Twitter a sign that even Trump knows how gross and inhumane and unpopular this policy is? And like, is he that much of a coward that he can't even own this policy? Yeah, it's, you know, he wants to have his kids ripped away from their parents and eat it too. Um, yeah, I felt the same way as Aaron did about it. It's really hard to, to find something to say other than just to be horrified. Um, you know, as always, Trump's, Trump wants to muddy the waters. He knows that, that for his base, he's making a point. And that's a point that a lot of people, unfortunately, will welcome. And we should be honest about that, that there are people who will like this. Uh, and that's ultimately why he's doing it. At the same time, um, you know, he is a creature of television. And television will not make this look good, so he'll be cowardly about that. It's interesting that they're using the defense of, oh, well, we, we rip children away from their parents all the time when we lock them up. And it's a reminder that, that this is not out of nowhere, that this is the end result of a process by which these kinds of ideas became rationalized, not just Trump saying that immigrants are animals. And reminder, we had a whole debate about how nuanced Trump was in the use of the word animals when, in fact, what we are seeing is the end result of a process by which you dehumanize people coming into the country. Um, but also, we do take a lot of kids away from parents unjustly. We do take a lot of kids away from parents who then go, are then incarcerated uh, for too long, often for minor drug offenses or minor offenses. We do have a police state that separates children from their parents. We do that every single day. This is, you know, you see a lot of politicians, Democrats saying this is not who we are. And it is very annoying because uh, what we do is exactly who we are. It's, we're doing it. It's who we are because we're doing it. It's who you don't want us to be. You'd it's rather who we us, shouldn't be. It's who we shouldn't be, but it's exactly who we are. It's 100% who we are. And it's not just something that Donald Trump did. Donald Trump is able to do this because uh, Republicans have capitulated to this politics. Republicans across the country are not campaigning on the Paul Ryan trillion dollar tax cut for millionaires and billionaires and corporations. They're campaigning on MS and MS-13 and fear-mongering about immigration. All, this is the end results of a shift in the Republican Party and a shift in our culture that makes this feasible. And I'm glad people are decrying it, but now we will see just how far the Republican administration and Republicans in Congress have fallen because I am not confident that we are going to see some kind of an outcry from Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan. I do not anticipate that happening, which yep. tells you that this is exactly who we are. Yep. Yeah. I think the other thing that's important to note here is that um, we're throwing more people into a system that's already broken. So if you're a kid and you show up at the border unaccompanied, you are placed with a relative or some sort of sponsor uh, via HHS, Health and Human Services, uh, and, and within 30 days, they're supposed to check in on you to make you're okay. Now, it's 
batshit crazy that they wait a month to check and see if a kid is okay. But a full 20% of the kids they checked on, uh, they couldn't locate. So that they're missing one-fifth of these kids. So now an accompanied minor shows up, and we're ripping more kids away from their families. And you're reading stories about people who are separated from an infant for four months. Yeah. And that does permanent psychological damage. I mean, it's not an inconvenience. These are kids who can't talk. They're terrified. The parents are terrified. I mean, the, the level of cruelty, it's not just like bureaucratic incompetence leading to cruelty. It's willful policy choices designed to scare people by being cruel. Yeah. Right. And I look, mean, to, and to add, um, we know that it's not just bureaucratic incompetence because a different justice system exists for people who have means. Harvey Weinstein has been charged with rape and he was able to turn in a, a, like in a, in a choreographed effort, turn in a $1 million check to you know, the Brooklyn courthouse or wherever he was being raped and walk. And meanwhile, there are people who, who are lost, 1,500 kids have been lost. They can't be located. So it's just, we, we live yeah. in two different Americas. Well, and I will say, like, our immigration system is badly broken. It's been broken for a long time. It was broken during the Obama administration. It was broken during the Bush administration. It was broken during the Clinton administration. And the problem that you referenced, Tommy, um, a lot of those kids that were missing, that happened during the Obama years. And part of what happened was in 2013 and 2014, we had a surge of unaccompanied minors who came to the border by themselves, children. They weren't children as young as the ones who are being ripped away from their parents right now, but they were like 13, 14 year olds who their parents sent to the United States because there was horrible violence in Guatemala and Honduras and they show up and you get to the border and you don't know what to do with them. And so what the first thing they do is they try to pair them with a relative. And if they can't find a relative in the United States, then they try to um, put them in foster care. And if they can't do that, then they hope, then they try to send them back to go there. So they're trying to do the right thing, but the system is so broken that they can't figure it out. What's happening, so that's a bad system, right? But what's happening now, like it's, I think it's important to realize that what Trump has done has never been done before. This is a level of cruelty far beyond what any administration, Bush, Obama, Clinton, like, because it is all, even, even when Obama, the Obama administration was dealing with immigration and deporting people and everything else, there was always, always a belief that we would keep children with their parents. And now we've decided that that's not something that we're going to well, do. Well, all this from the party that, that touts itself as being pro-life. That is the right. thing that really drives me insane. How can you call yourself, how can you call yourself pro-life or pro-family? Pro-family is another label. Pro-family. Are you fucking kidding me? And You're they, breaking and families up. And look, and they know what they're doing because John Kelly said, look, Hopefully we won't have to do this for too long, but we need to dissuade them from coming in, which is also ridiculous. Do you think the people in Guatemala and Honduras who are fleeing from violence are looking at the fucking news and they're like, oh, I better not go to America. They're taking away children now right. because well, they're like on Twitter? Like what the? They, right. Well, look, they want, this is also, you know, we're only as good as like the unfairness we'll tolerate. They believe, they, they have a sincere belief that these are people faking asylum. That these are people yeah, who just do. want to come to America, that, yeah, they're escaping violence, but there's always been violence. That doesn't really count, right? Trying to escape with your kids from violence, from drug cartels, or, or just the immiseration in parts of your country shouldn't count and shouldn't count as asylum. And they view brown people trying to come into this country to start over because where they were living was so heinous 
and so unforgiving that they needed to try everything to escape, uh, that they, don't they think that's taking advantage of the system. And so they view that taking advantage of the system as more wrong, as so costly to us as Americans, even though it doesn't cost us anything to welcome people who are going to come in and get jobs and, and build lives here, you know. Uh, that it's worth this punishment of people that they're dehumanizing. The other thing, too, is just to your point about the brokenness of the immigration system, you know, one of the reasons all of this is happening is because not just Republicans, but also Democrats over many years have decided that the only pain to be visited upon people in our immigration system are the people trying to come into the country. You know, we build an extra legal system where you can come here and work for cash under the table, work in all kinds of industries. You can become a subcontractor so that you can work at places that couldn't technically hire undocumented people. Uh, your kids can, can and come and have new lives here. We built a system on the backs of undocumented people. But when there are raids, you don't see uh, owners of companies being carted off in handcuffs. You see undocumented people as the only people who pay the price. So we have spent 30 years building a system telling people to come here, and the only people who get hurt are the people who are the most desperate and most in need, and that, that, is, that is a collective failure, too. Yeah. That's all. Um, so I think uh, the question now is, is, is what can we do about this? And I think that, obviously, it's the weekend right now. You're probably listening to this on a Monday, but... Um, like, there should be an uproar in Congress next week over this, and, and Democrats should lead it, right? You're right that we can't expect fucking Mitch McConnell to do anything about it. But, like, I've been looking around for statements. Kamala Harris said something, and... Uh, Ryan Schatz. Ryan, Ryan Schatz. Schatz of Hawaii, and Chris Murphy, and a couple of other Democratic senators, and some Democratic congressmen, too. Every single elected Democrat should be up in arms about this, should be screaming from the rooftops about this. Um, because... Like, so, you know, call your congresspeople uh, next week as, as, as much as you can. And also, there's a lot of um, lawyers and there's a lot of people trying to help, public defenders trying to help these immigrants and help these children on the border right now. And they could, lose a, they could use a lot of help because they don't have the resources. So you can donate to United We Dream. You can donate to the ACLU. Those are two organizations that are, that are helping out a lot. And um, we'll post the links on, on Twitter afterwards and, and, and people should go donate. Yeah. I'll just, uh, it's a crime. It's a crime to take kids away from their parents who are coming here and following the rules. It's not just wrong. It's not just morally reprehensible. The United States is committing crimes uh, and you know against what? these people. And, uh, and they're, it's state terror. It's as bad as it gets. That's it's, all. Just, it's, it's, it's worse just like than just a policy. Somewhat, you know, Chris Hayes did a great segment about this last night, and he had an ACLU lawyer on, and the lawyer said, if some of these politicians could go sit in one of those ICE detention centers, in one of those courtrooms, when the child is ripped away from the mother or the father and see what happens, I don't think they would be quiet right now. And you should tell your congressman to go do that. So, um, all right. Let's talk about some real criminals. Michael Cohen, Roger Stone, and Don Jr. So we're going to start with Cohen. A few weeks ago, it was revealed that Cohen received a million-dollar payment from a private equity firm owned by Victor Vexelberg, a Russian oligarch so shady that he's been sanctioned by the government for interfering in our election and questioned by Robert Mueller's investigators at an airport. Um, now the New York Times reports 
that Vexelberg met with Cohen at Trump Tower to talk about U.S.-Russia relations just 11 days before Trump's inauguration and a few weeks before the million dollars hit Michael Cohen's account. And we know this because the C-SPAN camera caught them at Trump Tower. That is so stupid. Um, <laughs> No. <laughs> remember, that camera? remember that camera and everyone's like, I wonder what, what use this will be. It's a fucking documentary of crime. <laughs> it's like, there's Kanye and there's the Russian oligarch that's helping interfere in our election. Yeah. Uh, Tommy, what do you think about this story? I mean, it's so fucked up. So just like real quick on what an oligarch is. Um, <laughs> these aren't just like when... So when the Soviet Union broke up, they privatized all these assets, like oil and gas, like aluminum mines, like big things. And people that were politically connected took ownership of them. Uh, and, but you had to be like powerful and influential. And then, so these guys amassed a ton of power. And then Putin came along and was like, fuck that. I'm going to slap these guys down. So he took the richest guy in Russia, arrested him, put him on trial, had him literally sit in a cage like Saddam Hussein or like, you know, someone in a... In a Banana Republic, uh, and he was like, you work for me now. So when you read about Michael Cohen meeting with an oligarch, this isn't some like, rich prick from Wall Street or like, a guy who exited at a VC firm. This is someone politically connected that is probably like a pseudo-agent or agent of the Russian government. So when it's a carve-out that's useful because it gives them some distance, but no one should be fooled. If these guys are sending 500 grand to Michael Cohen, there's a reason. Wasn't it, for real estate advice. It's not for real estate advice. They weren't trying to get into the taxi medallion game. <laughs> yeah. Michael Cohen. Michael Cohen was looking around in 2009 and he was like, taxi medallions. <laughs> this Uber thing? Uber's, a, Uber's a flash it. in the pan. I'm going all in on long-term taxi-related assets. Yeah. And he, print newspapers. It is, <laughs> it is just fascinating to me that somebody who has you know, $500,000 deposits going into his account, million-dollar deposits going in his, into his account. How does he still so aggressively look like shit? <laughs> <laughs> if, if I had that much money, yeah. I would look amazing. Yeah, you got to start spending some of that oligarch cash, you know? I know. Unless <laughs> it's not going to you. Maybe it's going to Donald Trump, you know? The, um, we're at this sort of, you know, the, the, there's been this question about, like, well, how, what, do, what, what kind of corruption do we really need here? Like, do we need the equivalent of, like, blocks of cash they find in a refrigerator? Like, we're getting there. That's yeah. what this is. We're now at the... Well, we're getting the reports of it. Who knows what we... Again, we don't know what Robert Mueller knows. He probably knows, he almost definitely knows, a lot more than we do. Right, right but, but, I, but these reports are reports of basic corruption. Like, right. not complicated corruption, not influence peddling. I'll give you money, you give me a government service. Like, we are, like, Mike, there should, Michael Cohn, at some point, will be taking a photograph with, like, a briefcase where there's cartoon dollars coming out of the sides <laughs> of it. You know, those, that's how you know. That's how you know. Like, he's going to be in, like, a, a 19th century muckraking yellow journalism cartoon <laughs> uh, with a big top hat. I mean, so, so my, my take on this is I think that as long as, you know, the economy for right now, which is pretty much decoupled from decisions that are made on the executive level, yeah. uh, or it's lagging enough that we're not seeing results of these decisions right the second, as long as the economy, as long as people feel like the economy is doing well, I think they're not going to freak out about corruption because it's like, well, whatever, I'm doing fine. But I think eventually the shit's going to hit the fan. Eventually what we're seeing in our own lives and our own pocketbooks is going to be a reflection of what's been happening for the last two years. And when that I happens... Mean, and you're, 
you're already seeing it, right? Like right. they're announcing double-digit premium increases after the Republicans tried to sabotage the Affordable Care Act for next year. Uh, you see, like people, it, so it's it's starting to happen too. It's not no, not in a broader level, not in a recession, but right. Yeah, I mean, but you know, here t to be fair though, if you, if you don't want high medical bills, you should just consider not getting sick. That's true. That's <laughs> true. That's true. Um, so it's not just Michael Cohen. We should talk about uh, Roger Stone. Oh my God. Um, Emails obtained by the Wall Street Journal show that in September of 2016, Stone asked a New York radio personality who'd been in touch with Julian Assange of WikiLeaks for access to stolen Clinton emails. Uh, Stone withheld these documents from the House Intelligence Committee, which seems rather problematic. Um, and things have also seemed to sour since then between Stone and this radio personality, Randy Credico. Stone wrote to him in an email in April, Everyone says you are wearing wire for Mueller. And according to an email Critico provided to Mother Jones, Stone also wrote to him this spring, prepare to die cocksucker. Um, but he put up space in between cock and sucker, which I did. thought was the he most did. Roger Stone-esque. You, know you know what I appreciate about that? It really focuses you on the true meaning of the term. You know, so often, it's like how, it's like how Diet Coke, you don't really think of it as diet and Coke, it's just Diet Coke. Like, when we say cocksucker, it's just like, you know, it's a term of insult, and in the back of your mind, you know what it refers to. But cocksucker is so much more vulgar somehow. It's subtle, but worth highlighting. We're going to earn that explicit rating on today's episode. <laughs> um, it's the news, John. This is like 1998 all over again. It is How the will news. we talk to the children? Um, but love it. How funny would it be if Roger Stone goes to jail because of Hillary's emails? Oh, <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. That's so, good. That's so nice. <laughs> it's like it's a real thing. Lock him up, you know. Uh, that is terrific. Roger Stone seems eminently screwed. Uh, it's like every. It seems like there's no one who's ever met Roger Stone who would care enough about Roger Stone to not fucking rat him the fuck out to the FBI. Like, no one who spent any time with him has walked away saying, I'd fucking die for that man. I'd jump in front of a train for Roger Stone. What they say is, yuck, what do you want to know? Uh, so that's cool. Uh, but let's, you know, there's no justice in this world. He'll be on a list of 10 names pardoned in a tweet. You know, it'll be a screenshot from a Samsung S2 <laughs> with a bunch of names. And Trump says, I hereby pardon them to stop the Democratic witch hunt. Uh, <laughs> Also, Gillibrand should be in jail, as should Kamala Harris. Vote for me. That's it. That's the message. Um, so last but not least, we have Don Jr., everyone's favorite. Um, Democratic Senator Chris Coons wrote in a letter to Senate Judiciary Chairman Chuck Grassley this week that he's concerned Donald Trump Jr. may have lied to Congress when he testified that he wasn't aware that any other foreign governments besides Russia had offered help to the Trump campaign and that he hadn't sought that kind of help. The reason he thinks he lied is because the New York Times reported last week that Trump Jr. took a meeting with an emissary representing Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, as well as the head of an Israeli social media company that had drawn up a plan to carpet bomb social media for Trump's campaign. So it does seem like he lied to Congress. Um, meanwhile, not enough for Don Jr. to have that happen, Yahoo News reported Friday that the FBI has obtained wiretaps collected by Spanish prosecutors of conversations involving a close Putin ally who met with Trump Jr. at an NRA convention in 2016. The man leading the Spanish investigation of the Russians who were monitored said this week, Mr. Trump's son should be concerned. <laughs> uh, so that's exciting, huh? That is great. 
Oh, man. What do we think, guys? Don Jr. going to skate by? Don Jr. rotting in Spanish jail seems also cool. Uh, it seems, no, I would say it's muy, muy divertido. Uh, but also, I think, I think it's really funny that, that Don Jr.'s, like, espionage and, and corruption form <laughs> is about as good as his squat form. He's really, he's really, I don't know if you follow him on Instagram. You should not follow him on Instagram, but I follow him on Instagram. He Aaron posts, follows him so you don't have to. Yeah. He posts photos of himself doing like squats yes. in a way that will very seriously injure his knees. Oh, he's <laughs> going to fuck up his he's back. He's going to fuck his, up his back. His, his knees are so far over his fucking toes, uh, <laughs> legally my, and physically. My, you know, when you think about it, <laughs> my favorite he's not Don protecting Jr. his piece, back. My favorite John Dunier piece that I read today was about how his recent Instagram posts are your classic thirst trap because he's newly single and he's yeah. posting pictures of himself sweaty at the gym with captions like literally Donald Pump. So he's out there. He's out there, ladies. Meanwhile, he's on those bird legs because, you know, he's the kind of guy that just doesn't do the legs. You yeah, know? No, he skips leg day. He, he skips definitely leg day. skips leg day. And he leg says day. he doesn't, but he's he full of shit. He skips leg day. He's definitely doing air squats and calling it leg day. We can get into it, but it's vain and revealing. <laughs> I, I will say, though, just kind of going back to, I don't know, Donald, his, his place in the pantheon of pop culture, it, it does, you know, other people have pointed this out, but it, it does really bother me that SNL's characterization of him is that he's the dumb one yeah. and not Eric. Or no, that Eric's the dumb one and not Don. Yeah. Because Don is, like, clearly the idiot. Eric's smart enough to shut the fuck up. Yeah, yeah. I well, think, we, are, yeah. we are sort of getting a picture here, though, of where this might go, even though the story is pretty vague. John's about getting us back on track. <laughs> I was just like, hey, guys, there's collusion happening. I don't know. <laughs> um, it, it does seem like we also found out that um, Russia was funneling money to help the Trump campaign through the NRA. And now we have, and we know that National Trump Russia Association. <laughs> <laughs> Episode title? Yeah. Episode title. Yeah, National yeah. Russia Association. Um, Will it work? Maybe. Uh, and now we know that the FBI has these wiretaps. So it tells us a couple of things. One, again, that Mueller and the FBI have a lot more. They know a lot more than we do. And two, the whole thing is like, everyone's like, is there occlusion? Is there not occlusion? It's pretty all out in the open there at this point. There's yeah. Donald Trump. Donald Trump Jr.'s taking meetings. He's accepting it. Roger Stone's asking for hacked emails at this point. Like, right. yeah. And I think a key point about all of this, too, is um, – it all doesn't have to add up to one grand master plan. Right. These are a lot of different, different people kind of, you know, operating either with Donald Trump's explicit or implicit uh, uh, encouragement uh, to just try to help in any way possible. It doesn't matter. No legal, legal issues didn't matter. Being scrupulous or moral didn't matter. And they're just trying to bring stuff to him. Don Jr. desperately wants the love of his father. Uh, and cannot have it because Donald Trump is incapable of love. It's the, it's the core of everything. It, you see, he wears it on his face every single day. There's not a picture of Don Jr. that doesn't say, how can I get my father to love me? Is it possible? Uh, what is it like to feel the love of a father? Um, but, uh, yeah. I mean, I... <laughs> So I, here's, here's the thing about, about Don Jr. Obviously, the intent to collude is there. Uh, and it appears that like a, 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 a semi-successful collusion is there. But I will say that all of the Trump kids that Donald Trump like, acknowledges as his kids, so like Sans, Tiffany, and Barron, um, 
I feel like their entire lives. What are you doing? Yeah, no. I mean, let's be real. Good for Tiffany and good for Baron. Right. But like, <laughs> let's. Uh, so I, I feel like uh, Don Jr., Eric, and Ivanka were forever going to the office with their dad and being given like a, a pretend phone to act like they're at work with their dad. But now their father is the president and they're still thinking that there are no stakes. But in right. reality, they, they might have been compromising American interests at the, at the expense of Right, and, and Jared was the one that we were all told was the smart one and married into the family. Noted Harvard grad, I believe. That's uh, right, yeah. We learned recently... Good work, all of you. Yeah, what do you think uh, paid for this place? Yeah. You think it was the sweatshirts? <laughs> no, we're, in the, we're in the Kushner arena. We learned recently that uh, all the, the people in the Saudi Arabia and the UAE that he's been cozying up to and sort of handing over our foreign policy decision-making to refer to him as the clown prince because they think he's a fucking idiot. So the crime family is very stupid. Tells you all you need it's to not know. not doing well. Okay. That's it for the news, and now we have uh, something else. Now for a game we call OK Stop. There we go. Finally. Here's how it works. We'll roll a clip. When we feel like it, we say OK Stop to talk about it. Every year, the sitting president delivers the commencement speech to the U.S. Naval Academy, and this year was no different. Luckily, Fox News show The Five was there to review Trump's commencement speech so we didn't have to watch the whole thing. Let's roll the clip. President Trump putting America first front and center during a rousing commencement address at the U.S. Naval Academy graduation. We are witnessing the great reawakening of the American spirit and of American might. The fight must come. There is no other alternative. Victory, winning. Okay, stop. What is he talking about? Okay, stop. Okay, why? Okay, so the other day Mike Pence tweeted hashtag winning in response to the NFL's rule change. Right now, Donald Trump is saying winning in this speech. The origination of, uh, the the origin of winning was Charlie Sheen in a manic episode. Meltdown. Meltdown. When he also (laughs) introduced the concept of tiger blood to America. Like, I I, I will say it ironically, when I have just thrown up from drinking too much. <laughs> it's not cool. It's not cool. Honestly, the Trump administration is the Charlie Sheen manic episode of governance. Um, <laughs> We're living through it. We're that all dealing sense. with it right now. I just want to make okay, one. Greg, oh, so okay, you- stop. I just want to make one point about Donald Trump's eyes. Uh, <laughs> He's, I don't know if he's tanning or if he's refusing to put down his phone when he's getting makeup around his eyes. I don't know. But the, racco- the, the American Psycho 1980s tanning bed raccoon eye thing, I, I like think it's great. A, I feel like there's a portmanteau there that somehow combines the word raccoon with the word oompa loompa, like ra- raccoon-pa-loompa. loompa Raccoon-pa-loompa. Anyway. Yeah. One, just one note about the speech. Uh, he was speaking at the Naval Academy... Um, John McCain graduated from the Naval Academy, served his country for many years, held prisoner, was tortured in Vietnam, served in the U.S. Senate, is, is dying of cancer. Didn't mention him. Didn't mention him once in the speech. And also not surprising at all. Not surprising. Yeah, the least surprising thing in the world. Right. Rousing speech. Were you prepared for that? You seem stunned. Well, I'm, try- I'm trying to talk figure out what I should talk about. Should I talk about North Korea or that amazing commencement speech? Finally, a commencement speech uh, for the okay, rest stop. of America. 
Um, for the second wave millennials in the room, um, MTV used to show music videos. The woman there in yellow is named Kennedy. She was a VJ. Oh, that's Kennedy. Yeah, it's wow. Kennedy. What happened? Honestly, I was my least favorite Kennedy. <laughs> that's like, <laughs> where are they now? But if it were pronounced, where are they now? So I was trying to figure out how the fuck Kennedy jumped from failed VJ to this show. So well, I, I think, I mean, people can't see it at home, but the look on her face tells you all you need to know yeah. right now. <laughs> so I Googled her. Greg Gutfield, like. Yeah, okay, Kennedy okay. doing this is a lot like Mr. T selling, uh, uh, you know, infomercial ovens. Careers are long. Save. So I was Save. Save money. You done? Yeah. So I was Googling her today. She was a big Nixon fan. She was a Republican. And then, and then she said, um, the quote was, social conservatism was, quote, really bringing me down. So she became a libertarian because Kurt Loder gave her an Ayn Rand book. I just wanted to share that with everybody. That is from her Wikipedia page. That is real. That's a bummer. Kurt Loder. Hard to hear okay. first. And he's speaking a language <laughs> that everyone around the world understands, including our adversary. So when he say, says stuff that, that is conveying America first and we're back and we're great, it's kind of meant for Russia. It's meant for China. Okay, it's meant stop. for stop. Why are all of like, okay, so like maybe half of the Trump guys are all evolving into the same kind of vaguely Rankin and Bass villain guy. Like Jeff Sessions looks like a little bit of a claymation elf. Oh yeah. Greg Gutfeld oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. is evolving into a claymation it's elf. The ears. Uh, Roger Stone also a claymation elf. It's just an observation. I think it's just that um, it's like how the force uh, when you go to the dark side it slowly starts to show itself in how you look just inevitably. Um, I just think you can't sit at this table and do this without it slowly coming out of your pores. I just started like <laughs> Them talking about the America First message. Like, the headlines are filled with the fact that they asked Russia, the United Arab Emirates, and Saudi Arabia to help them win an election and, like, took a ton of money from them. And then they're still sitting there talking about an America First policy right it's, now. It's so helpful to see Fox, in, like, to see its form now because it's, we'll know in any future administration, just, like, be aware this entity would defend anything. It's, um... Our version of state TV, it's, in, like, it's the way the NRA's version of fascism doesn't look like German fascism. It doesn't look like Italian fascism. It looks like American fascism. And our version of state-run television propaganda doesn't look like North Korean propaganda, which is someone in like a 1980s sort of pink, big, pink-shouldered uh, <laughs> uh, like business suit. Looks like Greg Gutfield in a fucking unicorn yeah, mug. It's, yeah. it's, it's Greg Gutfield. <laughs> this is what... American propaganda will look like. It's red, white, and blue, and somebody from MTV uh, is there. It's a bar now. <laughs> it's a Long Island bar. Yeah. It's meant for everybody who actually understands it, and I know that it works because it upsets the elites who prefer the, you know, the flaccid okay, lexicon. Okay, stop. What are these, what is he talking about, elites? I just like, heard him say flaccid elites. I heard him say flaccid. I don't want to imagine anything involving hardness or softness in the context of Greg Gutfeld. Um, no, I, I just, this is, this is the thing that happens on Fox News all the time, this, like, decrying of elites. It's like, what are, what are you talking about? Well, also, about? like, uh, your party controls the presidency, the Congress, 
the judiciary and you're on the largest, most popular cable network in the country. Right. You're and fucking there, buddy. Exactly. You're on the elites. And you're at the very top of the fucking pyramid. <laughs> <laughs> you're well, winning, Greg Gutfield. Look at you. You're a champ. hashtag winning. But they're also in this like alternate universe where they the only the only way that they know how to talk about anything is if they're from a position of of imagining themselves as the victims. Right. And and like. Like in a, we're in a world where like Beyonce is the president in Fox News world and like a co- campus culture is out of control and like snowflakes are dictating what everybody can say and it's Fox News is on top of yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, they're, so they're doing it's, well running Fox, it's the most Fox News is the representation of the most powerful human beings on planet Earth who want to feel like victims. Of the typical, you know, political platitudes. This speech was about America first. It was wrapped in patriotism. He wrapped himself in the flag. He wrapped himself in the military. I think that's Jesse. Why he spent time. He wants them and their stamp of approval and their high approval ratings among the American people to transfer to him. When you question somebody's patriotism, that means you can read their mind. If somebody's actually okay, Scott. What was Juan Williams saying just there? The, the, the hypocrisy was, is so was, glaring. It's like, it, it's almost hard to talk about. The, the notion that Fox would take offense at questioning someone's patriotism when they just savaged John Kerry for years, when they accused Barack Obama of apologizing for America, of not loving his country, of not being born here for years and years. It's just so fucking infuriating. It's also, by the way, not a Trump thing. Remember what Marco Rubio said, that he didn't think Barack Obama had America's interest at heart? Oh, he yeah. said he was intentionally trying to destroy America. Intentionally trying to yeah. destroy America. Well, you know, the, um, <laughs> the, uh, the patriotism, like, they're like, ah, we know this is getting the elites all hot and bothered. Like, when, when Donald Trump says, we're going to put American first and American might and all the right, we're not, I don't feel as though we're fuming. I think we're rolling our eyes and also remembering that he did a bunch of anti-American crimes which continue. It's not, it's not getting us. It doesn't make us, you know, it's not, yeah. it's just like the idea that like, ah, got those liberals again by saying America comes first. <laughs> I, I mean, and, and also to bring it back to a, a kind of a, a downer of a topic that we were talking about earlier, like talk about people that value America, people that are risking their lives to come to America because they value like the idea of America so much and what it can do to their family. Like, like, these people are sitting in an air-conditioned studio that might be like five degrees too cold. And meanwhile, there are people coming up from Honduras and Guatemala who right. value America more than anything. And the, the, they got to work in a town car that, that picks them up every day and drops yeah, them Yeah, but, but they really wanted the super or the, the right. SUV. They wanted the suburban. I think these guys are full of shit, guys. I think you're what? Right. I think they're full of shit. Yeah. The love for a country, you can say, oh, that's just you know he's trying to play to this audience, but you don't know that you don't know that right. so what you're doing is act- I mean, it's, not an ar- it's not an argument to say that you okay stop you so it just went through all five of the five uh which right still row. hasn't said anything his point <laughs> yeah we haven't heard from jesse waters uh the scamp of the group you know <laughs> the vixen we haven't heard <laughs> i have i hate them Beat his mind. I that did he, not. Yes, you, you, yeah, you, you did. You basically said. said it was all an act. He's rapping, it was an he was wrapping himself, he in himself in the flag. Maybe he loved. Okay, maybe he loves that. America. I think we all learned a lot from that. It's the worst show on TV. Just poison being pumped into the the brains of exurban senior citizens all over America. All day long. All day long. Should we do game? And that's okay. Stop.
Now for a game we call Alternative Veritas. Harvard University, where a young student who has worked tirelessly on every paper, assignment, and test can finally sit shoulder to shoulder in the same classroom as the docile, semi-literate grandson of a coal magnate. <laughs> oh, I see. I see how it goes. How many people here went to Harvard? <laughs> It's going to get worse. <laughs> If you were really that smart, you would have known not to woo. There's been some good students here at Harvard, or as the worst of you would say, Cambridge. Students like Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Malia Obama, Jeremy Lin. But for every, <laughs> but for every FDR, there's a real POS. <laughs> When it comes to American public life, Harvard is not sending its best. So we thought we'd highlight some terrible Harvard alumni in a game we're calling Alternative Veritas. Would anyone out there like to play the game in merch? Uh, big, but but I, it's already done. I, and she's the biggest fan. Can we just I, we're gonna we're, you're playing, and you went to Yale. Ugh. The, uh, we'll, we'll let you play. It's fine. We just say hi to her for one second because she was so. Hi, my name's Grace. I'm a big fan of all of you. Thanks for coming to Boston finally. Thank you, Grace. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Reverend Grace. Hi, what's your name? Matt. Matt. You have a Yale hat on. I do. Okay, I like the trolling. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, don't care where you went to school. It's not that big a deal about you. Stop making it such a big deal. <laughs> well, uh, we, we couldn't all go to the, you know, the NESCAC. That's right. I'm not an Eve. Matt, you're stalling. Uh, here's how the game's going to work. We're going to read you questions about various people who may or may not be Harvard graduates. Be up to you to figure out the answer. Are you ready to play? I'm ready. Great. Question number one: Academia is often accused of being a safe space for the liberal elite to get together, smoke pot, and gender's locker rooms, and shut down some free expression. <laughs> Pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Which of these proud non-PC truth tellers graced the halls of Harvard, where conservatism is supposedly a crime? Is it A? Famous sexual harasser Bill O'Reilly. Is it B? Wise, cracking, anti-gay thought leader Antonin Scalia, or is it C? Alan Dershowitz, a lawyer who has selflessly taken on the unjustly accused in desperate need of help, like O.J. Simpson, Harvey Weinstein, and Donald Trump. C. It's all of the above. <laughs> O'Reilly went to the Kennedy School. Scalia went to Harvard Law. Dershowitz, youngest professor ever at Harvard Law. I don't know what you're shouting. Question number two. Oh, <laughs> these Harvard people! Like, call on me, call on me. Give it a goddamn rest. You already got in. The only hard part is getting in. Yeah, the, getting through the application process, and it's A pluses, so you get it into the law school. So, question number two. Scientists at Harvard demonstrated the first successful heart valve surgery, introduced the smallpox vaccine to America, and luckily for Donald Trump, invented the blood test that detects syphilis. But, <laughs> <laughs> but despite saving all those lives, which famous killer walked the hallowed halls of Harvard University? Is it A? Attractive cannibal Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> Is it B? <laughs> uh, Unabomber and tiny house enthusiast Ted Kaczynski. Is it C, the least funny clown of all time, John Wayne Gacy, or is it D, 
the Zodiac Killer Ted Cruz. It's B. It's B and D. But we'll give it to you. We'll give it to him. We'll give it to him. Uh, it's true. Kaczynski got a BA in mathematics. And Ted Cruz, the Zodiac Killer, went to Harvard Law School before he, uh, <laughs> before he took to filibustering and murder. Uh, question number three. Harvard has been home to great musicians and poets like Pete Seeger, T.S. Eliot, and friend of the pod Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine, who always plays guitar next to Michael Moore on the steps of Wall Street Banks. But which artist is Harvard not so proud of? Is it A? The guy who told Drake to release a song called Duppy. Is it B? All four members of the band Nickelback. Is it C? <laughs> is it C? Ernst Hoffensteigel, a former Harvard cheerleader and Hitler confidant who claimed to have based a famous Nazi march off of the Harvard fight song. Or is it D? The audio terrorist who wrote all of Justin Timberlake's most recent music where he finally lets us meet the real Justin. <laughs> and then it has to be D. Do you think it, you say D? No, it's the Nazi. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was the Nazi. It. Also, it was, like, two of these answers relative. were Canadian. Really? The, yeah, Justin Bieber and Nickelback, both Canadian. Anyway, that's weird. Weird. Good for them. Weird. Weird game. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, uh, the, the uh, Ernst Hofschnagel, uh class of 1909, <laughs> even came for his reunion in 1934 while he was Hitler's leading international propagandist. I hope they had punch. Uh, <laughs> oh, other fact. He met Hitler through a friend from the Hasty Pudding Club. <laughs> <laughs> Question number four. Matt from Yale. Donald Trump's cabinet is filled with the best and the brightest minds of our generation. Which of these Trump cabinet members proudly wore the Harvard Crimson? Is it A? Senior advisor to the president, Jared Kushner. Is it B? Senior advisor to the president, Steve Bannon. C. Cocaine in human form, Anthony Scaramucci. <laughs> D. Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. E. The guy who held up a soup can on TV, Wilbur <laughs> Ross. F. Disgraced piece of shit, Rob Porter. G. Secretary of Labor, Alexander Acosta. H. The vice chairman of that bullshit voter fraud committee, Chris Kobach. I. Deputy Transportation Secretary Jeffrey Rose, and everybody knows J. Jeffrey. Secretary of Transportation Elaine Chow. K. Associate Attorney General Rachel Brandt. I. The only person between L. us and certain death, Rod Rosenstein. What do you think, Matt? Uh, I think this is why I went to Yale. Oh, good. Not a, not a great comedy program at Yale. Yeah, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just you kidding. Always I have to, denigrate. Honestly, I, get it. I hate I get both it. Yale and Harvard. It's like I Alien know. Predator. Whoever wins, we lose. Is it? Uh, <laughs> <what's> <laughs> All of the above. All of the above. You got it. Yes. Th that's only in the interest of time. There are 14 other names we didn't list, and we didn't look that hard. And that doesn't even include Kennedy School visiting fellows Sean Spicer, Ryan's previous, and Corey Lewandowski, or senior fellow Dina Powell. What happened to the Veritas, Harvard? You know, when you think about it. Uh, although Steve Mnookin, <laughs> Ben Carson, and John Bolton went to Yale. <laughs> so I just think another plug for Williams College here. And that's our game. Give it up for Matt, who won a parachute gift card. When we come back, we'll have our interview with Senator Elizabeth Warren from the uh, Edward M. Kennedy Institute.
we are very lucky that Senator Elizabeth Warren is in the building to welcome your senator. Senator, thank you for joining us. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. This is fun. Did you bring Duncan? We did no, not this time. I had it this morning. I was very uh, excited. John, in Los Angeles, John postmates Dunkin' Donuts coffee and breakfast sandwiches to his home yes. on a regular basis. Yes, it's a long-standing story. In fact, I, I, you know me. I'm always watching the finance end of things, and I saw <laughs> that when the announcement was made that John and Tommy were going to be here, that Dunkin' stock went up another 15% that it... We're, yeah. we're staying at the W Hotel, and right across the street, there's a Dunkin' Donuts. There's a Dunkin'. And I woke yeah. up this morning, and my wife's like, should we get breakfast ordered? Should we go out to a nice restaurant? What's your favorite place in Boston? This is home for you. And I said, no, no, we're going right across the street. Right, right. right. Exactly. Um, exactly. You know, I think they actually amend the directions on your, on your uh, app here. You know, most apps are like you go down five-eighths of a mile. Here it's you go down two Dunkin's. <laughs> and then turn left, and then you go past a Dunkin' on your left, then at the Dunkin' on your right. right. You, you make another turn and then come around. Next there. to the yeah. packy. Uh, it yeah. works. It works. Um, Senator, so the last time we had you on the pod, you talked with John and Tommy about the partial repeal of Wall Street reform that was yep. being debated in Congress. Yep. Um, you call it the Bank Lobbyist Act, which we like to, to call it. Um, right. So the president signed this repeal this week after 33 House Democrats and 17 Senate Democrats voted for it. Yeah, we're um, really starting out with fun stuff, aren't we? <laughs> well, I was going to like, why do you think your Democratic colleagues, all of whom supported Dodd-Frank, that voted for this, um, why do you think they voted the way they did? And I guess more importantly, where do we go from here? I saw that you tweeted, this isn't the end of this fight. Right. Okay, so let me start with the fact that the overwhelming majority of Democrats voted against it, took a strong stand and said no. Uh, and just to remind everybody what we're talking about here with the Bank Lobbyist Act, and the reason we call it the Bank Lobbyist Act, is it was driven by the bank lobbyists. They're the ones who made big money off this. They were hired by the giant financial institutions to push this. Now, for those who voted in favor on both sides, they said, hey, there was help in here for community banks. And, you know, this is what's frustrating about Washington. Both sides were willing to offer some help to community banks. That was not the dispute. The community banks were held hostage so that the Republicans said, we're not moving this thing forward unless the help for the community banks is accompanied by help for the giant banks. And the help for the giant banks came in two different forms. One form is that we have about 40 giant banks in the country right now that are on a special watch list. That's just the way to think of it. So they get extra scrutiny. You, every other bank is kind of gets the regular regulatory stuff, but those banks, you check them more often, you do stress tests. Why? Because when they screw up, they take down the whole economy. And they're the ones out there running a lot of fast plays. So the first thing this bill does is it takes 25 of the 40 biggest and just moves them off the watch list. So it treats a bank that is a $225 billion bank as if it were the tiny little community bank out in Enid, Oklahoma, okay, and poses no more risk to the economy than a bank of that size. And by the way, 
just so everybody's clear on this about kind of what that means in terms of size, anyone in here remember countrywide? Oh, countrywide. Countrywide. That was the bank that was pushing out the lying, cheating mortgages that basically blew up this economy. At their height in 2005, 2006, they were pushing out one in every five mortgages in the entire country. And what was Countrywide's capitalization? About $225 billion. In other words, the next Countrywide will be treated like a tiny little community bank has been taken off the watch list. So that's one problem. The other is there were a few just small technical adjustments. Don't worry your pretty little heads about them. Tiny little adjustments that mean that the ones that are still called the too-big-to-fail banks, that we still leave them in that designation, can do things like reduce their capital standards so that if things go wrong again, you, the American taxpayer, can pick up the ticket on it. And keep in mind on this, in terms of risk, because that's what this is all about with these big banks, in terms of risks, the Wall Street Journal editorialized against this bill, saying don't let those big banks take on more risk. It doesn't work out well for the rest of America when that happens. Bloomberg Business editorialized against it. Uh, Even the government agencies stepped in and said, not a good idea, and yet Congress rolled this one on forward. And if you'll let me, I want to do one more piece because this just drives me nuts. <laughs> so it's bad enough. The big banks are pushing, muscling this thing through. They're holding the community banks hostage. But as long as it's moving, what they do is they say, let's get in just a couple of more punches for hardworking families. First punch... Lending discrimination. Lending discrimination is real in America. There's a new study that came out that showed 61 cities where they did the analysis and found out basically that African-Americans, Latinos, have a harder time getting loans than whites who have the same credit scores, same credit histories. And when they do get those loans, they pay more. And think about the implications of that over time. Okay, 61 cities, new study. Now, how do you get a study like that? You get a study like that with something called HMDA data, okay? Acronym, welcome to Washington. But the point is data that every bank has to report. Man, if you've got a lending discrimination problem, there are two approaches you could use. One is you could say we need to attack lending discrimination head on. We need to call out the financial institutions where it's happening. We need, to, we need to enforce the laws, the anti-discriminatory laws, right? That's one approach. The approach in this bill is to say 85% of banks no longer have to report data on lending discrimination. Think about that. So that's in this bill. And then one more. Home mortgages. That's, that's, how, that's how the big banks blew up the economy last time. They did it one family at a time, selling them one lying, cheating home mortgage that the people didn't understand, but boy, the bank was clear. They knew, they knew that you weren't going to be able to repay that thing, that you were going to have to refinance, and that meant more money. Or if you couldn't, they were going to get the house back and resell it again, which in an up market was money, 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 right? So when Dodd-Frank was passed, 
Congress said, we're going to create, okay, everybody get ready to applaud. We're going to create this new consumer agency, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Yay! But just in case, we're also going to say there are certain things no matter what else the CFPB gets tied up in, they must do on mortgages. There are going to be some new rules that have to come out, basically to say if these, if these big banks want to cheat people in the future, they are not going to be able to do it through home mortgages. So some things about what's called steering and yield spread premiums, which is just kind of a way of doing kickbacks, and some tie-in arrangements on how they could make more money and cheat more people. So... These rules get passed, and these rules apply, I just want everybody to follow me here, to regular bricks and sticks homes, mortgages on those kind of houses, the kind you'd expect. They apply to condos, sounds right to me. And they also apply to people who live in manufactured housing, trailers, double whites, people who are trying to buy their homes, that's their entry-level point. What this bill says is the rules are still going to apply to bricks and sticks. They're still going to apply to condos. But, you know, those people who live in trailer parks, eh, let them get cheated. It's not going to make a big difference. That's the kind of stuff that, when that happens, you just want to say, how does this, what kind of a government would let something like this happen to its own people? What kind of government would say, we're going to help out for the profitability of the giant financial institutions, or in this case, for the companies that make these manufactured homes, sell them, repo them, sell them, repo them, sell them, repo them, and make their money that way. We're going to let them just we're going to move the needle over and let them trick people a little more, cheat people a little more, fool people a little more, so that the folks at the top can improve their, their bottom line, their profits. And here, if it weren't enough, at what moment in America does this happen? It happens at a moment when the banking industry is making record profits. And it's true for all of them. So... The rich get richer, and everybody else eats dirt. That's what that new law is all about. Bad law. Yeah, bad law. Bad law. So just sort of to follow up on that a little bit, I mean, obviously there are big banks and financial institutions and their army of lobbyists making, you know, pushing for laws that are clearly self-interested and going to hurt people. Um, But I also think you have incredibly well-educated, well-meaning people making policies and making decisions um, based on, you know, policy papers and sort of things they've learned. How do we ensure that more people in Washington who are working uh, in the White House or Congress have actually experienced poverty and, and understand uh, the implications of what they're doing on everyday folks so that it's not just lobbyists and then think tanks sort of figuring so, out what happens. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push this in a slightly different direction, and that is to talk about what I think is really going on in Washington. We've got to name it for what it is, corruption. This is just corruption. <laughs> and... And it's corruption 
in so many ways that pervade what happens in Washington. And look, the American people have tumbled to parts of it. We talk a lot about campaign finance reform on our side, about Citizens United. We need to get money out of politics. And what, yes. That would help a lot. It would help a lot. But it's not the only way that the influence of money is felt in Washington. It's not just the campaign contributions. And that really goes to your point. It's who Washington hears from every day. So folks go over and over, think about this. This has happened before. People say, I'm going to the polls to vote the bums out. And then they go to the polls and they vote. And government keeps working just the way it worked before. It just doesn't change. And so the cycle starts again. And they say, I'm going to the polls to vote the bums out. And it stays about the same, maybe gets a little worse. What's the reason for that? One of the reasons is because the people who are really running much of Washington aren't on the ballot. They're not there. Michael Cohen. Yeah. (laughs) Right? So let's at least pick the pieces that are the most obvious. So I'm working right now. I'm working on a a big piece of legislation. There's just an anti-corruption legislation. Uh, Clean government. That's what I want to see. And let me offer three quick parts to it just as a, just a taste, right? The little, uh, these are the previews of coming attractions. But three quick parts to it in thinking about all the work that gets done through the agencies, through the administration, through the cabinet officials, right? All that work that gets done in Washington. So what could you do? Well, I can think of three things. The first one is you could say nobody gets to bribe people on their way in. So this business, for example, of giant financial institutions that will pay millions of dollars to their own employees to go take a leave of absence to work in government so to regulate the very institution they are leaving. Anyone see anything wrong with that, right? So the first one is, no, if you want to serve in government, that's great, but you don't get a parting gift from your company that suggests that maybe while you're in Washington, you're going to be doing a lot of work to help out your former and future employer. So that that would be one. A second one would be, when you go to work in the government, you gotta get rid of your assets that create, no more conflicts of interest. You gotta divest, that's it. Divest and disclose. And if you're not willing to divest and disclose, then don't take the job. We'll get someone else. And the third part is when you leave government, especially one of those really fancy jobs in government, you shouldn't get to trade on the, the, the list of friends you made while you were in government. Because I think that changes how people think about it. So here's one. How about if we put a lifetime ban on lobbying, just to start, on every president, person who serves in Congress, uh, agency head, and cabinet secretary. 
to say you want a fancy position like that, fine, but you're signing on the dotted line that you're not going to turn around and become a lobbyist afterwards. It might help. Senator, yeah. so, you know, this, this bill that seems to put more power in the hands of big banks has just passed through Congress. The Supreme Court just ruled against workers who uh, have arbitration clauses in their contracts. Um, there is, a, there is this debate about how Trump happened. It's a long one. But, but I think there's... Or a short one. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But I think there's these competing theories. One said, oh, it's a, our norms, our, our values, they've been undermined. But on the other hand, that what we're seeing is entrenched corporate power, using that power to consolidate its authority in Congress, in the agencies, in the courts. Uh, 17 Democrats voted for something that you think is an emblem of the power of these banks. We're, you're, you're saying that we have elections where people vote for change and they don't get it. Are Democrats right now representing the kind of change we need that if we were to win in 2018, people would feel as though their votes were validated? All right. That is a really good question. So I'm going to I, I take this question really seriously. In fact, it's a big part of what I talk about, is we got to win in 2018, and we, get, we actually have to watch this in pieces. It, it, we win in 2018. We still don't have control to get everything through that we need to. So let me just play it on out. We win in 2018, and that puts us in a much stronger position to be able to, for example, stop some of the worst nominees that the Trump administration is pushing through, particularly lifetime judicial nominees. That's a powerfully important thing if we have control of the Senate. It gives us a chance to put a break on something like a tax bill that gives away a trillion and a half dollars to giant corporations and billionaires and puts us in a position to put a break on where at least the House says it, and, and actually the Senate, uh, Republicans say they want to go next, and that is to cut Medicare, to cut Medicaid, to bring the, the budget closer back to balance. So it permits us to do that. If we are in a position in 2020 to, please God hear me, uh, <laughs> have Democrats in the House, uh, in control of the Senate and in the White House, then it's not just, that's the end goal. No, that's only the beginning. At that moment, we have got to deliver real change for the American people. That has to be our job. We can't just say, okay, we're here now. It, it cannot be that our goal is to go forward saying, we're not as bad as those guys. We do not suck as bad as the other side. We actually have to do something positive at that point. So one follow-up on that. One of the many, many things that keeps me up at night. Um, if, the, if the Democrats take the Senate, if we should be so fortunate in 2018, and we get to the place where there is a Supreme Court vacancy. Yes. If it's Ginsburg, if it's Kennedy, if it's, it's someone on the court. Um, Democrats at that point yeah. have the power to make sure we don't get another Gorsuch. But to use that power, it may look like what Mitch McConnell did and holding that seat open for Gorsuch and making sure that Garland didn't get in. Do you think the Democrats, if faced with a nominee like Gorsuch, 
when they're in control in the Senate, will hold the seat open or will block a nominee like that. So let me reframe this just slightly. In, in thinking about it this way, this is how I think about it. We had the filibuster for a very long time, but it was very rarely used. And the reason was because knowing that there was a filibuster meant you had to kind of keep those folks within a certain range. I get it. The people that George W. Bush would put in wouldn't be exactly the same as the people that Barack Obama would put in, but they'd be, they'd be along the same road, right? They'd be somewhere in that close in. Merrick Garland. Look, Merrick Garland is the kind of man who could have been nominated by a Republican or a Democrat. And decades and decades and decades in our past would have been, would have been that kind of guy. And what's changed, first with the loss of the filibuster, and can we also talk blue slips, or will that just make us sound so wonky that everybody else said, right? It'll cause people to I mean, dial out. Not this chamber. crowd, not where we're sitting, right? Okay. Anyway, there's some Senate minutia. Mm-hmm. It's very frustrating. It was turned against us. Yeah, yeah, there you go. But, the, but that the bottom line is all of that was there but rarely used because it was a way to get us to come together and not politicize the judiciary, not get people who'd said things that just are disqualifying on its face, and not get people who come in with strong ideological bents or already beholden to someone. You know, the big problem, you you just mentioned actually in the Supreme Court, you specifically went to the most recent decision that just said, sure, employers can require you to sign an arbitration clause. And to some folks, that may sound like, okay, so what's the big deal? Arbitration sounds cheaper than going to court. Huh, yeah, except who picks the arbitrator? And if you get cheated, if you get harassed, if you get discriminated against, and you're told, go to our bought-and-paid-for arbitrator, that's a bit of a problem. It's a bit of a problem because it takes legal rights that you are entitled to and says you no longer have redress in an American court. Yes, you're an American citizen. Yes, your rights were violated. But sorry, way back at the beginning of this employment relationship, before you knew who that guy was that you were working for or what this company was going to do, you signed, and somewhere there in paragraph 39 in technical legalese, you just said, I don't care what you do to me. I'm never going to have the right to take you to court. And I'm not going to have the right to join with other people who were discriminated against, who were harassed, and take you in a class action lawsuit. That's pretty stunning. So which Supreme Court justice in a 5-4 opinion just delivered that gift to corporate America? Answer, Neil Gorsuch. Neil Gorsuch. But here's the point. But would you hold the seat? Well, so... So the question is who you put up, because that's how I see it. I don't see it as starting out, saying, I don't care who you put up, I'm holding the seat. That was what Mitch McConnell did. He said, you send me anybody. If it comes from Barack Obama, there's a two-letter answer, and the answer's no. I think that's wrong. But I do think you send a Neil Gorsuch to us, and the answer is no. 
we do hearings, we do it substantively, the answer would be no. Um, Senator, we, we have to let you go, but I just have one last question because uh, I read something you, you said recently and I, I frankly found it a little shocking uh, and I need to use this opportunity to ask, which is that you said that you're a big fan of the show Ballers. Oh, yes. Um, now, we're, we're HBO guys, but Game of Thrones, John Oliver, Barry's really good, but is it The Rock? Is it the, the, the whole thing? Like, why Ballers? It is The Rock. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. <laughs> <laughs> Senator Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> and that's our show. Thank you guys so much for coming out. Thank you, Boston Calling. We love you.